Welcome to the Stories of Transformation podcast. I'm your host, Bakhtash Ahadi. Each week I dive into deep and intimate conversations with distinguished guests who share their unique perspectives about the most interesting topics of our time. In our final episode of 2020, I'm in conversation with Marjan Naudri, who is a writer, educator, and a six-time poetry Grand Slam champion. Interestingly enough, Marjan didn't give much thought to poetry until middle school. It was at this critical juncture in her life that her teacher saw something really special in her and encouraged young Marjan to explore the arts, particularly spoken word poetry. Her teacher's inclination turned out to be correct, as Marjan soon developed a voracious appetite for the craft and began writing poems of her own. In a remarkably short span of time, Marjan's talent would take her from penning her first poem to performing in front of thousands on some of the world's largest stages. She would go on to become the Washington, D.C. Youth Poet Laureate, Poetry Grand Slam champion six times, and earn a wealth of other awards for her outstanding poetic achievements. But for Marjan, the work was never about the accolades nor the attention. From the beginning, poetry was a tool which facilitated her own self-discovery, self-expression, and healing. She was able to channel her life's trauma into her poetry. Marjan believes that everyone's an artist, and some are still searching to find that perfect medium to express themselves. For Marjan, spoken word poetry's confluence of language, storytelling, and theatrical performance is the art form which she came to understand, explain, and empower for herself and others. I found this conversation to be riveting, and I hope you do too. If you enjoyed it, please share it far and wide, and as always, leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. So without further ado, I bring you Marjan Naudri. Marjan Naudri, welcome to the podcast. How are you today? I'm definitely recovering from like a crazy wedding last night, but I'm good. <laughs> That's good. That's good. It's a pleasure to be speaking with you today. I think the work that you do in terms of the person and the people in which you represent and the community in which you represent is quite unique. And I'd like to unpack that with you. But the way I like to kind of start all my conversations is by asking you, in your own words, how do you kind of define who you are? Mm, who am I? I've thought about this question, especially during this pandemic. I've really rewritten. I went back inside to find that my drive is very heavily fueled by recognizing a greater purpose. And I'm seeing that greater purpose to simply be a vessel for love and honesty and truth. And with that in the back of my mind, I entered this earth where I have a string of memories and a building and a foundation that I can lean back on to help me build with that idea of love and honesty and truth to move forward with. And I found for me, it is my work, it is my words, it is my poetry, and the desire to uplift the communities that have been silenced and harmed through the voice and the privilege that I have in this moment of time. Mm-hmm. I think that's a wonderful way to kind of set the foundation for how to proceed in this conversation. It'd be great to help me and help those that are listening understand, you know, how is it that you kind of found the beauty of language? How is it that you kind of uh, discovered it as a tool to kind of not only tap into who you are, but tap into a sense of responsibility that you may have in the work that you do? Hmm. Yes, I, I think about the relationship with human beings and language often. Uh, I think first and foremost, 
about prenatal development and in how in the womb we are becoming familiar with the sounds around us and how we begin to gear our system towards adopting the knowledge of language and the sound of language and how that carries into our lives. Um, and I'm Afghan American, so in my household, there was a lot of Farsi before English. Majority of my English um, education before kindergarten and primary school was television shows that taught me how to identify letters and numbers in English. Um, that was the closest thing I had to it. Other than that, it was it was mainly Farsi that was spoken on the tongue. And when you're in a home where you're, both your parents are refugees and have seen war and have been a part of the war and have been torn by the war internally, there's a lot of pain that resurfaces on their tongue. And it's the desire to almost make this pain exist elsewhere outside of their frame. And so I saw a lot of ugly language as any child would when their parents come from ugly places. And at first, my relationship with, with language was trying to fill in gaps, trying to overcompensate for what I don't have. And so I found myself trying really hard to learn how to speak pretty. <laughs> and so I learned how to talk about really cool things like philosophy and different concepts and bring it into my daily lifestyle. I learned how to narrate my life well and I learned how to explain myself well. I learned how to to go into the crevices that my parents didn't know how to teach me and find it my own. And that was me being an active participant in my life. And then like middle school came around and I had this one teacher who is like, I'm going to call her my fangirl, but obviously that wasn't the case. She just, she saw a lot in me and she wanted to see it come to fruition. And so this competition was coming up called Miss. And I was like, I don't know what Miss is. She doesn't, she's like, I've been there before, but I think that you should go. And I was like, well, what am I going to do? And she said, let's look at spoken word. Let's look at a few videos of spoken word. And I remember seeing Muhammad Tal's video. It was the target on my body video. And it took me so back because I had never witnessed someone condense an entire lifetime into three minutes and completely revolutionize my understanding of race, my understanding of placement and culture, my understanding of being a Muslim and how that clashes with the intersection of being an American. And I thought to myself, like, I want to make my work that great where I can get up and in three minutes change an entire person's life. <laughs> and so I was like, all right, we're doing spoken word. He has this quote, and it was a question that he asked me. He said, I don't care about why you love writing. I care about your journey. I care about how you came to learn that you have the gene of artistry in it and how you discovered it. And so that was essentially the question he would ask people in his workshops, like, how did you come to writing or how did writing find you? How did you find your gene? And, and, I, and I trace back to that story because I began writing of myself intentionally after hating anything associated with books. And I started to find pieces of myself in my work. I started to use writing as a mode of self-discovery almost like milking out the subconscious and bringing it in front of me and confronting my reality of like, not only what I'm trying to hide, but also what I'm trying to prioritize. And so my first poem for Mist was a very 
emotional, intense poem about death, about the cycle of living, about our placement and our duties and our responsibilities to those who love us. And I remember performing that piece and thinking to myself, this is the first time I think something has felt right in my system. Something has has entered me and made me proud of myself. And when you're a kid that grows up in almost like a broken home where there isn't a lot of heavy encouragement or affirmation of who you are and who you want to be, to see that glimmer of what being content with yourself looks like after 14 years of not knowing it well, it was really revolutionary for me. And I took a step back and I said, I, I like this. I like the storytelling thing that's happening. It's communicating with people and people are connecting with me. And then I started writing a little bit more. And my teacher was like, I want you to do a performance for an event. And I trust that you have the skill set to whip something up and make it good. And so I said, okay, let's take on the challenge. And then I started interviewing people around me. And I realized how deeply I love human connection. Um, and I used their work and I used their truths and I incorporated it into my work. And I did this performance. And I remember like four aunties in the audience being in tears and then coming up to me afterwards and thanking me for sharing a part of their narrative on a larger scale. And then I also recognized that my truth is worthy of being absorbed in the fullest capacity. And I'm allowed to take that space. And the second year of Mist came around. And so I was like, I'm going to do spoken word again. But this time, I'm going to detach the Marjan from the narrative and just make the story a story. This isn't about me. This is about the character and the speaker that I'm writing about. At that point in my life, I was going through a really intense, gut-drenching depression. <laughs> I was 14, 15. And I hadn't got out of bed for like weeks on end. I didn't want to shower. I didn't want to brush my teeth. I got annoyed of looking at myself in the mirror. It's like all my trauma just caught up to me at one time and decided to just eat me from the inside out, you know, crawl at my heart and, and tear it in and just leave me there. And I just didn't know what to do. But the only thing that was in the back of my mind was like, Marjan, if you're going to do anything, you're going to write this stupid poem for Miss because you remember how good it felt to connect with others and for others to be grateful for your voice. And I was like, fine. And so weeks and weeks later, I mustered up the courage to roll out of bed, literally, because I didn't want to walk. <laughs> Took a really quick shower. And I brushed my teeth put my hair back and I looked in the mirror, just took a very deep breath. And I just sat at this very desk that I'm sitting at right now. I whipped out my pen, I whipped out my paper, and then I started writing and in that subconscious poured. And it was like all the depression had began confronting me, like literally before me. It was like, just the paper was in front of me and I'm there and I'm like, oh my God, this is just a reflection of who I am, what do I do? And it was really like a spillage of so many thoughts, but I realized that the one thing that needed a lot of attention, it was a little bit of my history with being sexually assaulted. And to me, in that moment, 
I kind of thought like, if I do this, I'm coming on really fast on myself, but it feels like the justice that I need, because at least if no one else wants to stand for my story and like the people that I was telling in my immediate circle and they didn't believe me, the least I could do is believe myself. And so I decided that was going to be the poem I worked on and workshopped for best. And it was almost like I gave the poem the priority of like another person. It was like, this is the, this is the only relationship I have in my life right now. And I'm going to make this relationship the best it can be. And so I would walk outside just to think about the poem. When I'd eat food, I'd be thinking really intensely about the sensory details of eating food and being like, okay, if I could describe this well, maybe I could incorporate it into this poem. If I could do this, maybe I could do that into the poem. If I follow this train of thought or this pattern, maybe I'll realize a pattern and be able to reflect it on the piece. And I gave my all. <laughs> I gave my all because it was all I had. It, was, it really was. This poem was all I had. And then I started seeing myself come back to life from my depression, from like this gray space. And it's like this poem was bringing me back. And I, and I remember the, the competition rolling around. And at this point in time, I had mustered up enough to be like, I'm gonna take care of myself and I'm gonna wear this headscarf and I'm gonna look good. And I'm gonna go in there and I'm gonna share this poem just to share the poem. And there's no other reason I'm doing this but to share a poem with someone outside of myself. And I read the poem And I remember, literally, my, my hands were in fists the whole time. My hijab had a ring of sweat. I was crying half the time and shaking the entire time. But I did it. Like, I, I went through it from, like, start to finish. And that was enough. And when I thought this was enough, I opened my eyes. And I realized that everyone in this little room of, like, 50 or 60 people are, like, standing up for me. And they are giving me like this moment of, of, of silence that I had wanted so badly most of the time that I felt like I was stuck in that ugly place. One of the judges, Sadia Bashir, she just like came up and gave me a really, really tight hug. <laughs> and I thank her so much for that because that moment of like finally being embraced and being recognized and held was like the water I needed after I've planted my seed. And I just took a very deep breath and I went to the restroom and I splashed water on my face. And I just let it be. That was, that was, that was, that was the poem. That was, that was it. I did it. I finally did it. And then I came back in the room and I just listened to the rest of the poems. My mind was cleared and I felt clean in my system. And then a couple days later, on the last day, this dude Aziz comes up to me. He's like, can I tell you something, Marjan? And I'm like, sure, how, yeah, what's, what's good? And he's like, congratulations, out of the 270 people that did spoken word this year, you won first place. And you're going to be reading at the GW Listener Auditorium, which is the second largest auditorium in Washington, D.C. And I was like, you want me to read a poem that 
literally ate my insides in front of like a thousand people and just do it <laughs> like what but I was like no 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 I got this I could do this I, I I went through the first round and the second round I'm gonna use this as an opportunity for like a round two of healing and I said okay <laughs> and so for the week after I just prepped and I prepped and I prepped and I realized the first time I read, I made the mistake of not incorporating any healing techniques into caring for myself, either before or after. And I said, no, I'm going to use something to heal myself and soothe myself. So this time around, I don't put myself in any unnecessary hurt or pain. And then now I'm thinking back on it and I'm like, oh my God, that's the first time I put that intention to just care for myself. Like I was, I thought of myself as worthy enough to be cared for. <laughs> and the second time came around to read this poem and it was very similar. My hands were in fists again and, and I had the sweat staining my head scarf and I was shaking again. But this time I felt more concentrated. It felt like that hug that Sadia gave me I held it in the entire poem and it got me through in front of like these thousands of people. And it was weird because it's like, how did I just go like two months ago from like nobody believing me and me feeling like I am the worst thing alive and the world is so utterly gray and I'm not worthy of anything to like being requested to read this poem in front of people and being worthy of their time. I'm like, what is that? What a weird trip. <laughs> um, but I read the poem and I came off the stage and I remember like two dozen girls just flooded to the stairs, started giving me hugs and like, they're all crying with me. And I'm like, what is happening? And this one girl, she's like, you did it. You said my story. And I was like, I did, I did. I did say my story. And that's when I realized that human beings have these universal experiences that are so commonly shared. And we either allow them to channel modes of healing and knowledge and light, or we just cast them away and assume people can bear with it on their own. Poetry has been the making of everything that I am. It sucked me out of anything that has brought me pain and anger. And not only in that has given me the tool to initiate another person's healing journey. Majan, that was wonderful. Thank you for sharing that story. Your story in some sense is universal. It's really interesting. You know, the more particular and the more specific we get about our own story, there's an interesting thing that happens where all of a sudden that story becomes everybody else's story, it becomes universal. Through that process, we realize that our own lived experience, although it's specific to who we are, it shares our lived experience. And I think if we're honest about who we are and we're authentic about our own story and we go through vulnerability to be able to share it, it humanizes who we are to others. And in that process, people see themselves in us. How did it feel for you then to quite literally go from a place of darkness to not only being a light for yourself, but being a light for others? How did it feel to finally be seen? For me... I've noticed that my skill set is bred from what I've inherited and then what I've chosen to work on. And it happened to be nurtured by a community that was willing to nurture it. 
When I think about myself, I don't think of myself as a light in darkness. I think of myself as a vessel, the same as others are, just having a separate skill set, <laughs> just figuring out how do I dig myself out of the darkness every morning and then coming about. And in that organicity, in that authenticity, and with the intention to reach love or joy as the filling purpose of every second, light can come to be. But it's not necessarily me that is light. It is the mind that I've tried so hard to wire to, to make sure light is found in the day. Yeah. So I'd like to kind of talk to you as a matter of the work that you do and, and people that have observed your work, either in person or online. You have a wonderful way of kind of stepping into your work. And what's interesting about that is that I think once you step into it, it exudes and, and, and seeps out of you. And cognitive scientists and psychologists and people that think about the nature of the human mind call this the flow state. And so as an actual artist, how do you describe the flow state in, in which you perform and you kind of step into? What is that like for you? Every poem is bred from a really sharp glimmer. The perfect crossroad of a vulnerability, of honesty, but also the desire to empower. And when those three come to be, it's like that's when the poem flows for me. That's when it comes on the paper. That's when it does its thing. And this moment is very difficult to cultivate when you're sitting behind a desk. But when it comes, it's all you can latch onto. You just want to suck everything out of it. It's like, how did I take, how did I form this vessel and like make the circumstance and the environment for me to tap into it and make something of it? So, so find that part of myself. And once that's done on the paper, it's like the hard, the hard stuff has already happened, right? You, you've channeled it. And now this poem is serving as a reminder, as the stone of that headspace. And so when I get on the stage, I make sure to always ground my feet, my heels into like the creek of, of whatever the stage is made of. And the first two breaths are the most crucial because they have to be the two perfect breaths. And you only get one chance to do the two perfect breaths right after you've healed in like the, the 10 second transition that you have to begin. It's a very limited window of time to get it right. And in all honesty, it's not right as much as I'd like it to be. <laughs> I will start poems knowing that, dang it, I missed it, but now I have to find it. So if I've started and I haven't found the flow state to enter, to chap into, then I, then I look for it in the poem. I look for that same state in the poem as I read it. And the one piece of advice that I give to every artist that I see reading or performing their work is to hear yourself. To hear yourself and everything that you're saying and you're doing and to be the most attentive listener that you've come across with this work. And this time that you read this work, this is raw. This has never been heard before by your ears. This is something you need to newly absorb and clean of anything you ever thought you once knew. Almost like you're giving 
the first address to a group of people that haven't heard a word of English in like five months. It's cleared out of their system. And it's like now you're reminding them of what this is. And it's less about who you become on the stage, but more so where the po who the poem becomes, while recognizing that the poem itself will live a different life in a different space, in a different scenario, in front of a different audience every single time. Your job is only one job, is to read this poem and to give the poem the justice it deserves and is separated and detached from the artist. It is its own. You know, it's almost like how when a painter makes a beautiful canvas and puts it up in a museum and lives in a completely different part of the world and there isn't a headshot of, of the painter, there isn't, this is where the painting came from, this is just the art itself. And if you'd like to know more, here is my name, but it's not about me. And it's difficult to come to that realization when you're in slam, when you're in the performance world, because your ego wants so badly to attach into the moment and your ego wants so badly to remember the moment. But in reality, it's just the consciousness that flows. It's not you. <laughs> Very little are you actually you. And I think that's applicable to our, all art forms. We are all our artists just trying to figure out what medium we fall into. I like that. So Marjan, would it be appropriate for you to um, read a poem for us or set a poem for us? However short you'd like, however long you'd like. I'd love to read you a poem. Yes. Let's see. Would you like to hear the first poem I've ever written? I think that'd be wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> So this is before all of my experience and learning of receiving mentorship. It's merely just the poem. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Asked as she'd braid my hair. Asked as she'd hear my nightmares. Asked, but then she couldn't utter the word. Her last wish was to never see me again. My mother's heart couldn't take it no more. And soon my past and my present started a war. In life, you'll have plenty of time. You'll be able to play, pray, and you may play or play while you sleep near the bay, hearing the sound of the ocean waves coming to your ear, making time sound like a sunny summer day. But who will really take time to play when all we care about is work, success, and the next payday? And again, who will really make time to pray when our government is a synonym of God? A government that's sneaking through every open door, knowing everything you've never told before. How could I be so ill-behaved, hanging with bad friends every day while my mother was worried? But I always knew exactly what to say. And I don't know how to resolve this problem. My apologies aren't of use anymore. You played with that girl you love. Told her she's all you ever dreamt of and went and prayed with that boy you like. Show him how you loved him at first sight, but wait, the wind is bitter cold. It surrounds me instead of my protected abode. The words she'd say echoes in my brain. It won't help regretting now when the sparrows have already eaten the seeds. Matters is your deeds for the deeds that will make you succeed. So stop and remember the money, the cars that failed us at the hour that was never ours. After one chance, there will be no other for paradise lies under the mother. Always there for my first breath, my first word, my first step. 
there for my first tear and heartbreak there for it all. Then I created a barrier to keep her far, not knowing how much pain we'd both stumble upon. Life is about sacrifice, but I didn't know I sacrificed the worst of all. How could I be so blind? My knight in shining armor, my savior, my world, was always there protecting me, but I never bothered to appreciate what God had gifted me. Sitting there in stillness as my tears drowned my emotions, the waves washed back and forth with the feelings of regret and remorse. Yes, I have so many peers, but I'm so alone. My heart begins to break when I see your gravestone. Ask as she took her last breath. Ask as she saw the angel of death. Yes, that is my first poem. It was a varied stream of consciousness. And I would like to read that because I told myself I was never going to let anyone see that before. <laughs> And I feel like that's the most organic 14-year-old Marjan you'll ever know. <laughs> um, so that's a piece of her. But to, to close, I have another poem. Mm -hmm. This is great. What a treat. In first grade, I told kids my name was Sarah. Saw the way Sarah lifted the curtain, but never cleared the confusion of my first grade mustache. Wide enough for no one to ask questions. In second grade, my teacher did roll call every morning. I'd clench my fists as sheets sputter. J -j John Deary to the broken record of her eyebrows. Now, every time my name is said, my bloodline folds scripts of history. So it sounds better in the job interview. Strips of vowels hidden in my voice, unfitting for the Western tongue. Marjan, a dearie, oh, so like the plant marjoram, like parmesan, like the Chinese game marjan, like the way my first white teacher said it, the way she corrected me in front of the classroom until I learned to strip parts of my identity the way she did. The best lessons she taught me were never in the syllabus. She never taught me what to say, rather to bite down my tongue and watch heritage crumble to pieces beneath my jaw that she'd feed herself. She taught me to white out my name in the Farsi dictionary, reminded me for the family tree to stop growing. You gotta rip it from its cultural roots, tear away from what was once growth. She planted my roots in stolen soil and called it America, said, you shouldn't know another language here. Besides, what do you have to roll the R for? It's the only thing us white people can do. When you forget where you're from, that's when you'll truly become American here. Learn to sing our song now. Forget the bloodline or your blood will be next in line for our red carpet. Roll out your history only to have us stampede. We'll turn the cultural dances into the eight-step masquerade. Must I remind you of the seven? day battle or the six seconds it took to love a language that will never learn your name when I cry to my mother's feet about the people who will not accept me she tells me you have an identity translating to the coral and the depth of heaven's rivers your name is Marjan you grow from the root word Maraj Flowing freely tells me when you allow people to powder your name, the rest of your identity disintegrates along with it. The flags and people wave at the same things they have forgotten. Your grandfather did not immigrate halfway across the world for you to flatten your name to fit better in someone else's mouth. 
Your hands hold the lifelines and the lifetimes of a lineage. If they ask your name, if you dare feel ashamed, seek every fighting fiber hidden in your warrior of a body. Remember, they cannot empty the bloodline of a fighter. So reload another stone into the slingshot that is your mouth. Reach out the palms of an engraved heritage and say, Marjanina Didi. So Marjan, this is really wonderful. I um, Yes, poems. <laughs> as we wrap up here, I'd like to ask all my uh, guests one final question. And uh, it's this. What is your message for the world? Whole world. I don't think I've had this question asked before. Truth is not something to be found in the world. It is only when we dig at our core and recognize that love is found in the emptiest state of being that we will be able to assign ourselves a purpose that awakens us every morning. That's great. Marjan Nadri, thank you for the work that you do and um, thank you for your time today. Thank you. I appreciate your questions and definitely your ears, of course. If you enjoyed this conversation, please leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, please share it far and wide. This podcast is made possible by a superb group of individuals. Specifically, this podcast was produced by Joe Ganjemi. Digital marketing by Catherine Ahn. Artwork by Mashida Hadi. And theme music by Kais Esaud. You can find us online via Stories of Transformation on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, where we have an online community named the Stories of Transformation Group. In this group, we discuss topics related to the human condition. Please join us. We'd love your engagement. Thank you for your support, and see you next time.